Her hand moved behind his head and supported it. Her fingers moved gently in his hair. She looked up and across the barn, and her lips came together and smiled mysteriously. You've been listening to The Grapes of Wrath by John Steinbeck. If you... Our college trip took 21 hours and five minutes. <laughs> hey, why don't we... Let's just sit with what we heard. Are you serious? Well, we don't have to constantly be entertaining ourselves, do we? I wish I could live through something. Aren't you? Nope. The only exciting thing about 2002 is that it's a palindrome. Okay, fine. Well, yours is the worst life of all, so you win. Oh, so now you're mad? No, it's because just you're being ridiculous because you have a great life. I'm sorry, I'm not perfect. No one's asking you to be perfect. Just consider it would do. I don't even want to go to school in this state anyway. I hate California. I want to go to the East Coast. Your dad and I will barely be able to afford in-state tuition. There are loans, Your brother, your very smart brother, he can't even find a job. He and Shelly work. They have they jobs. They bag at the grocery store. That is not a career, and they went to Berkeley. Your father's company is laying off people right and left. Did you even know that? No, of course you don't, because you don't think about anybody but yourself. I want to go where culture is, but like how New in the York, world did I raise such or a at least snob. Connecticut or New Hampshire, well, where writers live in the get woods. Get into those schools anyway. Mom! You can't even pass your driver's test. Because you wouldn't let me practice The way enough. that you work, or the, or the way that you don't work, you're not even worth state tuition, Christine. My name is Ladybird. Uh, well, actually, it's not, and it's ridiculous. Call me Ladybird like Christine. you said you would. Just, you should just go to City College. You know, with your work ethic, just go to City College, and then to jail, and then back to City College, and then maybe you'd learn to pull yourself up and not expect everybody to do everything. Oh, how was your drive to church this morning? Uh, hey, everybody, my name is Scott. I am one of the pastors here. That's actually the opening scene from one of my favorite movies of all time. Uh, it's a movie called Lady Bird, and it, it follows this sometimes beautiful and sometimes volatile relationship between a mother and her daughter. Lori Metcalf and Saoirse Ronan uh, are the actors, and they were nominated for Oscars for their uh, portrayals in this uh, movie. It is not a family-friendly film, uh, but it's a, a film that's very real and very honest about the joys and challenges and, and sorrows of human connection. And I think it connects perfectly with what we're going to be talking about today. Last weekend at all the campuses at Hope, we started a new message series on the Ten Commandments. So that means this weekend, what commandment are we talking about? Oh, boy. <laughs> One, two, yeah. Uh, what are we talking about this weekend? The second commandment. Well, it shows up a couple different places in the Old Testament. Uh, Exodus chapter 20, verse 7 is one of the places. We'll put it on the screen and let's read this out loud together. Read it with me. You must not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Uh, when I was in high school, our family went and visited my Uncle Joe and his family in Wisconsin. 
And Uncle Joe, a deeply faithful man. Like you, you spend very much time around Uncle Joe at all, and it's pretty obvious that for Joe and for his family, faith in Jesus Christ is the most important thing. A couple of his kids are now uh, missionaries. Uh, one's in Ireland, one's in Kenya. And, and we were there uh, in the fall one year. And I don't remember very much about that particular visit, but I do remember this encounter. Someone was telling a story. Uh, I don't remember if they were telling a story, if it was just a conversation, but in response to something that somebody else had said, I said, geez, G-E-E-Z, geez. And Uncle Joe looked at me. He was not angry, but his nonverbals were communicating I had stepped in something. Uh, and so he began to uh, instruct me what I had done wrong. He said, Scott, do you know what a euphemism is? And so I knew what was coming next. Jeez uh, is a euphemism for Jesus. It's short for Jesus. You don't want to say Jesus, you just say Jeez. But Uncle Joe was like, well, you wouldn't say Jesus because that would be breaking the second commandment. So why would you say Jeez? Let's just not even say Jeez. Again, the older I get, it's really interesting to me the things I remember and the things I don't remember at all. I really don't remember anything else about that particular visit uh, to Uncle Joe's uh, house, but I remember the lesson he taught me about euphemisms and not saying geez. Uh, those were formative words. That conversation was a conversation that shaped me, shaped what I believe. Now, there is actually one other thing I remember about that visit to Uncle Joe. Even as a high school boy, I remember feeling somehow in my body, thinking, I'm not sure Uncle Joe is right. Perhaps Uncle Joe is overreacting. Perhaps there's more to the second commandment than just making sure there are certain words that never come out of our mouth. Perhaps when we do a message series on the Ten Commandments and we teach on the second commandment, Perhaps more often than not, we miss the point. That scene that we just watched from Ladybird, nobody swore. There's no cursing, no euphemisms. But there were a lot of words that were exchanged. And, and I'm convinced that scene is a picture of what it looks like when we misuse the name of the Lord. Words exchanged between a mother and a daughter. And at the beginning, there was some, some sweetness in their connection, but things escalated quickly. And by the end of that three-minute scene, they are arguing, they're yelling, and it is uh, the definition of disconnection when she jumps out of the car. And do you remember what they were arguing about towards the end? They were arguing about names. You're not even worth state tuition, Christine, the mom says. And the response back is, my name is Ladybird. Call me Ladybird. There's confusion in that moment about what name this young woman is going to carry into the world. Do not misuse the name of the Lord your God. This is the English from the New Living Translation. Of course, the Old Testament is not written in English. It's written in Hebrew. And the Hebrew word behind misuse is the Hebrew word nasah. It shows up a lot of different times, uh, hundreds of times in the Old Testament. More often than not, nasah gets translated to bear or to carry. 
to bear or to carry. So we read in the Old Testament about uh, camels that are nassawing or carrying loads of spices as they walk the trade routes of the ancient Middle East. Uh, We read about Joseph's brothers. When there's a famine in the land, they go down to Egypt where Joseph is now second in command. And Joseph says, fill up their bags with as much food as they can nassaw as much food as they can carry. And we read uh, when the people of Israel are finally ready to enter into the promised land, they've been wandering in the wilderness for uh, 40 years on the Exodus, and God commands the priests, when you go across the Jordan River and enter the promised land, I want you to carry, I want you to nassaw the Ark of the Covenant on your shoulders as you enter the promised land. So when we look at the second commandment, kind of in Hebrew it says, you must not carry the name of the Lord your God in vain or in an empty way. When we see this commandment, it should cause us to pause and to ask ourselves, what does it look like for me? What does it look like for us as a community of faith to carry the name of the Lord in a faithful way as we reach out to the world around us? Uh, That gets us to our Bible reading, uh, Psalm chapter 8. Psalm chapter 8 by uh, King David, the same line begins and ends Psalm 8. He writes, O Lord, our Lord, your majestic name fills the earth. O Lord, our Lord, your majestic name fills the earth. That's kind of an interesting way to phrase things, isn't it? Um, If David had written, uh, your power fills the earth, your presence fills the earth, your glory fills the earth, we'd be like, okay, that makes sense. What does he mean? What's behind this idea that your majestic name fills the earth. Well, what is in a name? Part of what a name is all about is our identity. Our our name tells us something about who we are. And so part of what David is saying is when we look at the earth, when we look at creation, and he'll write about it a little bit later, I'm I'm looking at the night sky and and the moon and the stars, or when you drive around uh, Iowa, did you know this is a picture from Iowa? This is Wildcat Den State Park uh, between Muscatine and and Davenport. We used to go there all the time uh, with our kids when we we lived over there. You, You look at the leaves that are changing to the vibrant colors of fall, you look at the fields that are ripe for harvest, and what David says... When we look at creation, it all, we see the fingerprints of God. We see the fingerprint, we see the identity of God. O oh Lord, our Lord, your identity, who you are, fills the earth. And so part of what David is saying, God's identity, God has infinite creative power. And at the same time, this God of infinite creative power knit us together in our mother's womb knows every hair on our head. God knows us in a deeply personal and intimate way. This is who God is. Your majestic name fills the earth. The writers of the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, they use this phrase, the name of the Lord, in interesting kinds of ways, a lot of different places. I want us to read three different examples in the wisdom literature where this phrase, the name of the Lord, shows up. And I want you to see if you notice a theme in these verses. So the first one is from Proverbs. Read it out loud with me. The name of the Lord is a strong fortress. The godly run to him and are safe. Next one is from uh, Psalm 20. Read it with me. In times of trouble, may the Lord answer your cry. May the name of the God of Jacob keep you safe from all harm. In one final verse, let's read this one together. You are my rock and my fortress, 
for the honor of your name, lead me out of this danger. Again, another picture from Iowa in the fall. This is Winterset. I think I'm going for a drive this afternoon. Anyway, did you notice the theme? The, the wisdom literature of the Bible points us to this idea. The name of the Lord keeps us safe. The name of the Lord protects us from danger. And so part of what it means for us to carry the name of the Lord faithfully to keep the second commandment would be to live our lives in such a way that it's just pretty obvious to everyone around us, we have this confident trust that God has us. God's got me. God's got my family. God's got our future. All will be well. Lady Bird and her mom are not in that kind of place by the end of that scene that we just watched. They're not trusting God's got them. They're not trusting God's got our future, God's got our relationship. They are not carrying the name of the Lord in a faithful way. They're breaking the second commandment. Go go back to uh, Psalm 8, and as David is writing through this, he's talking about uh, creation, and when I look at all of this stuff, I mean, it just makes me feel so small. When I look at how big the world is, how big the universe is, it makes me feel small. Who am I, David writes. Now, think about, David's writing this 3,000 years ago. Think about how much more we know today about how big and how vast the universe is than David. He had no idea. Uh, The picture you're seeing on the screen is a picture taken by the uh, Hubble telescope of something called N159. They say N159 is a stellar nursery. I like to think we have a stellar nursery here at Hope Ankeny. (laughs) Kathy Pilch and her team of nursery staff, I think she's hiring if you'd like to help join that team and care for people in the, they care for the babies in in our week after week after week. This stellar nursery is a spot in our universe where baby stars are born and they grow. Our stellar nursery just down the hall. This stellar nursery, 160,000 light years away. I don't even wanna begin to try to describe how huge. I, that is, I can't even fathom how big this universe is. And over the last century, centuries, we've been discovering, we've been learning more and more and more and more about how, what is out there in outer space and how big it is and how vast it is. At the same time, in the last century or so, similar reality has been happening when we look inside. We have just been discovering all sorts of really incredible things about Uh, how our brains work, how our nervous system works, and what the leading science, whether it's biology or psychology or neuroscience, what they're telling us as, as we discover more and more about how things are working inside us, every single one of us are operating from a deep-seated fear. And the deep-seated fear we all have, well, part of what it means to be a human being, our fear is we are not safe in this great, big, scary world. We are not safe. So I recently uh, found out, was reading and hearing people talk about something called the polyvagal theory. And the polyvagal theory, uh, uh, Dr. Stephen Porges is the guy who uh, came up with it. It's really a way of helping us understand what does the vagus nerve do? What is the role of the vagus nerve in our body? So uh, we have this nerve, not vagus like in Las Vegas, but uh, vagus as in the Latin word for wandering. Here's a picture of it on the screen. It starts way up in our brain stem and it goes all the way down, connected through our spinal column to pretty much every major internal organ in our body. It ends in the colon. So a lot of the function of our body, uh, the digestive system, heart rate, 
our breathing, it is controlled by the vagus nerve or the vagal nerves. It's, it's the way all of this stuff communicates with our brain. And it's part of the autonomic nervous system, which means it happens involuntarily. We don't have to think about making sure the vagus nerve is working. There's a woman named uh, Deb Dana, and Deb Dana is a licensed mental health counselor and an author, and she's been doing a lot of work on this polyvagal theory and how do we connect our biology to our psychology. And she's convinced the more we understand about our biology, the more we understand about how our bodies work, it's going to help us have a healthier psychology. Again, this is something that uh, we've been talking about. People know it is information that is decades and decades and decades old. When babies are born, something just happens instinctually. Babies are constantly scanning their environment, looking for cues of safety or cues of danger. Uh, a baby feels safe, held in the arms, held close by a loving parent. Baby feels safe. But sometimes uh, babies have these cues of danger. If there's a stranger, uh, if there's a loud noise, uh, if a parent leaves the room, go stand outside the stellar nursery when parents are dropping their kids off. You'll see a vagus nerve activated every once in a while. Um, and there's, it, it doesn't mean there's something wrong with the parents or the baby. Just, this is how we're wired. And it's true for babies and infants, but it's also true for the rest of us, for adults. Every moment of our life, our nervous system is at work under the surface, subconsciously most of the time, we don't even know what's happening, but we are scanning safety or danger, safety or danger. Uh, and when we sense danger, the vagus nerve is activated. Last summer, uh, during vacation Bible school, uh, my job is I'm on the skit team, and so we were rehearsing one of the skits for vacation Bible school. We were in my office, everybody's sitting around the desk, kind of uh, running through our lines. Well, that particular skit, I was supposed to tell really really lame dad jokes that nobody was going to, everyone was just going to groan at these dad jokes, but I was supposed to think they were hilarious. So I would tell the joke, everybody else would groan, and I would just laugh loudly and obnoxiously. That was my role. So Pastor Ashley is sitting right across the desk from me, and she's got her infant uh, son, Peyton Paxton. That, maybe this is why this happened. Uh, Paxton on her lap. And when I start laughing loudly and obnoxiously, his eyes got really big, and his lips started to curl, and he let out the most visceral kind of, you know, terror-filled cry. And you know how sometimes babies are crying so hard they're not even breathing? That was Paxton, and I kid you not, for the next month or two, every time I would stick my head into Ashley's office to say hi to Paxton, he would start crying, <laughs> terrified by the pastor, right? Now, last night I saw him, and we were fine. He's forgiven me. We're, we're okay. But uh, this is the sort of thing that happens inside not just babies. happens inside all of us, depending on, you know, what's going on in our in environment. And, and we see this is part of what's happening in this movie, uh, Lady Bird. Sometimes for Lady Bird, her mom is a safe place, and, and sometimes her mom is a scary place. I, I want to show you a couple more scenes. Uh, it, it follows Lady Bird through her senior year of high school. So this first scene we're going to watch is they're shopping for uh, dresses for a Thanksgiving party. And then the second scene is uh, they're shopping for a prom dress. And as you watch and as you listen, just pay attention to the way words shape us. Take a look. Did Danny say whether his grandmother has a formal Thanksgiving? 
I don't know. There are a lot of kids, but she lives in the Fab 40s. Oh, well, your dad and I went to a dinner party once in that neighborhood. The CEO of ISC, that was pretty formal. You're not going to a funeral. Well, I don't know. What says rich people Thanksgiving? I just think it's such a shame that you're spending your last Thanksgiving with a family you've never met instead of us, but I don't know. I guess you want it that way. Are you tired? No. Hey, Marion. Hey, Joyce. Hey, how's the baby? He's crying. No, I want to see a picture at checkout. Okay. okay. So if you're tired, we can sit down. I'm not tired. Oh, okay. I just couldn't tell because you were dragging your feet. Well, I just couldn't tell. Why didn't you just say pick up your feet? I didn't know if you were tired. You were being passive aggressive. No, I wasn't. You are so infuriated. Please stop yelling. I'm not yelling. Oh, it's Honey, perfect. I love it. I love it. Is it too pink? What? Why can't you say I look nice? I thought you didn't even care what I think. I still want you to think I look good. Okay, I'm sorry. I was telling you the truth. You want me to lie? No, I mean, I just wish, I just, I wish that you liked me. Of course I love you. But do you like me? I want you to be the very best version of yourself that you can be. What if this is the best version? Sometimes people tell me, uh, Pastor Scott, I felt like the sermon you were just preaching right to me. So just to be clear, like, I'm not trying to do that. I haven't talked to any moms or daughters. This could be dads and sons. It could be uh, husbands and wives. There's just, like, our relational world is tricky and hard and awesome and terrible all at the same time. And, and so I, I just think it's important for us to talk about it. Uh, Deb Dana says the more we understand about how our nervous system works, we, we understand that we have to be in a relationship with another human being in order to survive, which... Like when you think of a baby, when you think of an infant completely dependent on another human being for survival, that makes sense. But she's saying this is also true once we get old enough to be independent and as we move into adulthood. We have to be in relationship with another human in order to survive. And so part of the way it works over the course of our life as we're scanning for cues of safety and danger, we develop patterns of protection and patterns of connection. Our vagus nerve remembers. Uh, you could say, what happens in our vagus nerve stays in our vagus nerve. Oh, man, you guys. I mean, I'm trying here. I'm trying. Work with me a little bit. Uh, the vagus nerve in connection to the organs and what's going on in the brain, like over the course of our lives, it recognizes words, tones of voice, um, individuals, situations that are safe in situations that are not safe. And the polyvagal theory talks about how this impacts the way we relate to one another. Polyvagal theory really closely connected to something called attachment science. And what attachment science is uh, describing is this reality that uh, for children, if they're in a 
a safe and secure home environment, it sets them free to explore their larger world. But if the home environment isn't safe, if they don't feel secure in that home environment, it really limits a child's ability to engage with their larger world, uh, limits their ability to uh, relate to others in healthy ways. So attachment science says there's really uh, two types of attachment, secure attachment and insecure attachment. Now again, just to be clear, I am not an expert on any of this stuff. I certainly don't get it right very often. But I can point you to people who are experts, who know a whole lot more than me. Like this guy, uh, Crispin Mayfield is his name. He's written a book called Attached to God. I would highly recommend it. Uh, and, and I want to read for you how Crispin Mayfield describes what secure attachment looks like. Secure attachment is knowing you can count on your parent to stick around and give you comfort when you're sad or scared or hurt or had a bad day. They will step into your emotional experience with you and respond with empathy. As I was reading through this and thinking about secure attachment, it made me think about baptisms. When we do baptisms here, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. There's a name that's important around baptism. And at the end, of, we welcome whoever's been baptized into the Lord's family. We say, you're welcome here. You belong here. There's a place for you here. We're glad that you are here. And often we remind you of 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. See what great love our Heavenly Father has for us. He's called us children of God. That's who we are. And, and whoever the pastor is that's doing the baptism, they're holding that baby, and we ask you to pay attention to what's going on inside you in that moment because you are filled with a loving delight in that moment. Like, a secure attachment isn't, uh, I guess I'll tolerate your presence. I'll put up with you being around and being part of the family. It's a loving delight. Now, I don't know about you, but when I, when I read through this, it feels a little bit like bad news to me because <laughs> I know my uh, track record as a father. And there are plenty of times when a, one of my kids has come to me crying and I, I'm not able in that moment to offer them the comfort that they're looking for. Or, or they come to me and they are scared uh, and I try to teach them why the thunder and lightning shouldn't scare them instead of just joining them in that fear. Or they just want to connect and I just want to be alone. And so I read through this and I'm like, yeah, I blew it. I messed that one up. Now, here, here is uh, the good news. You don't have to get it perfect. You're not going to and you don't have to. Again, they've been studying this stuff for quite a while. Uh, 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 Lehigh University did this study, Susan Woodhouse, but uh, you see this in a lot of different places. Caregivers need to only get it right 50% of the time when responding to baby's need for attachment to have a positive impact on a baby. We like to tease meteorologists. Wouldn't it be great to have a job where you don't have to get it right? Parents, only half the time you have to get it right. For your child to have a secure attachment, to go out into the world and just soar. Now here's some bad news. Um, when we look at the general population, about half the population has secure attachment. Half the population has insecure attachment. Half of parents are not able to get it right even half the time. Now, when I think about this stuff, and, and maybe, maybe this is interesting to you. If it is interesting to you, I would encourage you, uh, there's all kinds of books you can read about this. There's all kinds of podcasts you can uh, listen to about this. My wife introduced me to an uh, Instagram account 
called the secure relationship. This Instagram account, like day after day after day, just super practical tools. If you know your attachment style, then uh, this account helps you kind of pay attention to why you are relating to people the way you are relating to them. So like this post says, uh, what goes through your mind based on your attachment style when your partner is disappointed about something you did? That happens about once a year in my marriage. Um, <laughs> no. And then you just swipe through it and it tells you, here's what's going on. And it's like, ridiculous how, how well it connects. So that's the kind of stuff that if you're interested in it. Part of what I like about Crispin Mayfield's book, he's like, here's the biology, here's the psychology, but then he connects it to theology. If half of the population have an insecure attachment style with the people in our lives, he says, guess what? Half of us have an insecure attachment style when it comes to faith, when it comes to our relationship with God. And an insecure attachment style with God means we don't actually trust, we don't actually believe God is who he says he is. The name of the Lord is my strong tower, my rock, my refuge that keeps me safe. Half of us don't believe that. And we have this insecure... And so, uh, just kind of briefly, I want to go through these three attachment styles that he talks about in the book. And I know it's way too small, but hopefully it, maybe they'll go full screen uh, behind me and uh, you might be able to read some of it. Um, I'll try to post it on my social media pages, but it comes right from his book. So I wanted to uh, not mess with it a little bit. So first of all, he talks about anxious attachment style. Again, you can have anxious attachment with the people in your lives. You can have anxious attachment with God. Uh, anxious attachment style Sometimes people who have this, they appear needy or clingy. Uh, maybe you get a text from someone at 9 o'clock in the morning, and if you, if you don't respond by 9.02, they send you another text. Did you get my first text? And, and it appears needy and clingy, but underneath it is this belief that it is up to me to maintain connection in the relationship. I have to do, I have to do, I, it's up to me. If I don't do this work to make sure we're staying connected, you're going to leave, you're going to abandon me. In our relationship with God, then, what it looks like is we believe we have to do more and we have to do it exactly right in order to keep God close. It's up to me to keep God close. And so uh, we're like, hey, God, did you notice that I'm at church today? Hey, God, did you notice I read my Bible today? Did you notice I prayed today? Like, we're always trying to get God's attention to make sure God knows we're doing enough so God will stay close. Anxious attachment style. Shame-filled attachment style. Uh, these are people who just, they believe that there's something fundamentally wrong with them that can never be fixed. They, they were just broken from birth. And so, it's really interesting. The way they believe they can be connected with others is to make sure that nobody finds out about their brokenness. Or, or, I don't want you to be surprised by how broken I am, so I'm just going to tell you right up front all my flaws. And I'm going to constantly remind you how imperfect and broken, and uh, I'm sure you're disappointed in me, I'm just a failure. Like, it's just constant. That's in our relationship with people. In our relationship with God, we feel like in order to be close to God, we have to feel miserable. And so it's like, I really hope the, the preacher preaches some fire and brimstone today just to remind me of how awful I am. Like, I will tell you, the majority of people who have worshipped at Hope Ankeny and no longer worship here, when they tell me the reason they leave is they want me to beat them up a little bit more. 
Stop telling me about God's love. Stop telling me about God's grace. Tell me how awful I am. It's a shame-filled attachment style. And then there's a shutdown attachment style. In our human relationships, it's like, uh, this, is, this is when you're in a family that doesn't really allow for emotional expression. Particularly, I talked about this a, a couple of weeks ago, particularly very uncomfortable with negative emotions like fear or sadness or uh, worry. And so when you're a child and you're expressing these kinds of emotions and your parents are uncomfortable with it, you, you quickly learn that when I express these emotions, it leads to disconnection. Like my parents don't want to be around me when I'm expressing this sort of stuff. And so you learn to just stuff it. I'm just going to pretend I'm not feeling those things. In our relationship with God, again, we talked about it a little bit uh, last week, it, or a couple weeks ago. If I really have faith, if I really trust God, then I shouldn't ever be sad. I shouldn't ever worry. I shouldn't have any fear. And so we stuff that in our relationship with God, and we say things that sound spiritual. God never gives us more than we can handle. God works all things together for good. And we're looking for that closeness, but we're not actually experiencing it. So these are just examples, just real quick, some insecure attachment styles that we have with the people in our life and that some of us have uh, with the God of our lives. Secure attachment, insecure attachment, it impacts us in, in all of these ways. And it turns out a lot of us, a lot of us are like Ladybird. She's uh, at the dressing room with her mom, and she wonders, does my mom even like me? A lot of us are like that with God. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. But does God like me? Is God just putting up with me? What science is telling us is what scriptures have been telling us for years. Like, we are created for connection. And, and the deep desire, the longing that we all have is for this connection, this love that draws us close and that holds us in a safe way. And I'm convinced that desire, that longing, it points to the existence of God. It points to our need for God. Last week before her sermon, Pastor Ashley asked us to do a little uh, exercise, a prayer exercise. She introduced us to the pause app, and we just took three minutes to just kind of quiet ourselves in the presence of God. I like what Henry Nouwen writes about prayer. He says, the real work of prayer is to become silent and listen to the voice that says good things about me. Listen to the voice that says good things about me. Of course, he's talking about the voice of God. Think about Jesus' baptism. When Jesus is baptized, he hears from heaven the voice of his heavenly Father saying good things about him. You're my dearly loved son. You bring me great joy. Words of affirmation and identity. Let me tell you who you are and that who you are is good. You remember what happens next? Very next thing. Jesus goes into the wilderness where he's tempted by the devil for 40 days, hearing very different kinds of words. And you and I live much of our life in the wilderness. All kinds of voices that you are just blasting us. And sometimes it's coming from the people closest to us. And these are the words that shape us. And what some of us have learned over the years is that uh, the people close to us have the words that hurt me, the words that are painful, not good words for me. We learn that being close hurts. Think about how that impacts 
our relationship with a God who wants to be close to us. Maybe there are better words for us to be listening to, better words that can be shaping us. This is the word of the Lord from Isaiah 43. But now, O Jacob, listen to the Lord who created you. O Israel, the one who formed you, says, the one who shaped you, says, do not be afraid, for I have ransomed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you go through deep waters, I will be with you. When you go through rivers of difficulty, you will not drown. When you walk through the fire of oppression, you will not be burned up. The flames will not consume you, for I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. This is the word of the Lord from Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. Never will I leave you, the Lord says. Never will I forsake you. And from Psalm 18, verse 19, I will lead you to a place of safety. I will rescue you because I delight in you. These are the words that can shape us, that can draw us nearer and nearer all the time into this safe and secure relationship with the God of the universe. Now, the people who study polyvagal theory and uh, science attachment, uh, attachment science, they say when our nervous system is feeling unsafe, uh, we are dysregulated. Uh, when our nervous system is in a, a place where it feels safe and at rest and, and secure, we're regulated. And what Deb Dana says is she calls that regulated place home. It's interesting. The writer of Psalm 90 says, Lord, through all the generations, you have been our home. You have been the rock, the fortress that I can stand on and, and know I am safe and secure. You are the one that regulates my nervous system, that helps me know I'm safe in this world that sometimes feels overwhelming and scary. And in Jesus' story of the prodigal son, the turning point is when the son comes to his senses and he says, I will return home to my father. There's something about this regulated place. There's something about being home. We were singing those songs earlier, and the second song we sang had these lyrics. Let praise be a weapon that silences the enemy. Let praise be a weapon that conquers all anxiety. How does that work? How does praise do that? I think it's biology that connects to our psychology, that points us to our theology. God's the one that created our nervous system so that when we praise God, when we trust God, when we believe God is who he is, it brings us home. It gives us that sense of safety and security. That's kind of what we see happening throughout this movie, Ladybird. Um, her mom doesn't want Ladybird. She's got this deep fear. Ladybird's going to leave and she's never going to come back. So she's, I just want you to go to Cal Davis. It's really close. It feels safe. Just go to Cal Davis. But Ladybird wants to go to the East Coast. So she applies to a bunch of schools and uh, she gets turned down by most of them, but one of them says, we'll put you on the wait list, and eventually they accept her. And so she and her dad say, let's not tell mom. <laughs> mom will freak out. Mom finds out. And if you want to know what shutdown attachment style looks like, there's a scene in that movie. Wow. Um, they go to the airport for her to fly off to school. The mom won't get out of the car to hug her daughter goodbye. What Ladybird does not know, the mom's been up all night trying to write a letter to her daughter to say, I really do love you. I know I'm terrible at showing it. 
I really am proud of you. I, I know that I have failed you in all kinds of ways. I wish I would have done better. I love you, I love you, I love you. But the mom wants the letter to be perfect. So she starts it, she gets a paragraph or two in, and then she crumples it up and throws it away, starts another one. She's like 10 letters in the trash. The dad comes in in the middle of the night, pulls all the letters out of the trash, straightens them up, puts them in a folder, tucks it in Ladybird's suitcase. So when she gets to her dorm room in New York City, she opens them up and she reads them. And it all leads to this, um, the, this scene we're going to watch, where after a really foolish decision, Ladybird is walking the streets of New York City, and Grace begins to lead her home. Take a look. Hi, Mom and Dad. It's me, Christine. It's the name you gave me. It's a good one. Dad, this is more for Mom. Hey, Mom. Did you feel emotional the first time that you drove in Sacramento? I did, and... I wanted to tell you, but we weren't really talking when it happened. All those bends I've known my whole life, and stores, and the whole thing. Thank you. You're carrying a name with you. Name your family gave you, sure. But you're carrying another name with you. God's given you a name. 
And it's a good name. Because it's his name. He puts his name on you and asks you to carry it into this world. Knowing you are safe, you are secure, lots of horrible, awful things will happen, and it's going to be fantastic. Now and forever. Because God's got you. So let's stand and let's sing about the beautiful name of Jesus.